Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. This is the second in a series of podcasts where I focus on a specific area of English instruction. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Zoe Enser about how generative learning can be implemented in the English classroom. Zoe and her partner Mark have offered the education world a number of fantastic publications, including their most recent book, The CPD Curriculum. But it is their book released earlier this year which takes a teacher's eye view of Fiorella and Mayer's generative learning theories that I am discussing with her today. For anyone who hasn't read it yet, I can't recommend it highly enough as a source for formative assessment and consolidation of learning within the classroom. We discuss the best book Zoe's ever read, taught or learnt at school, who are Fiorella and Mayer and how she came across their work. As an English teacher by trade, can Zoe see some of the activities lending themselves more to the subject or does each one offer an equal opportunity for consolidation of learning? What kind of transaction cost would Zoe associate with the respective activities as some seem more intuitive to students than others? Are some of the strategies more effective at certain moments in an English scheme of work, i.e. end of the lesson or as a homework task? And lastly, in her own experience, which of the activities does she more naturally gravitate towards and why? Thanks so much again to Zoe for finding time in her busy schedule to speak to me about this brilliant resource. If you'd like to be made aware of where more education chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Um, okay, so uh, for you, what is the best book you've ever read, taught or learned while you were at school yourself? That's it's such a huge question, that one. I think in... <laughs> In terms, you know, to ask an English teacher to kind of narrow it down to just one or two choices is huge. Um, But I think um, probably Toni Morrison's Beloved was just such a huge revelation to me, Um, not just in terms of the themes, because she's so much more than her theme. She's so much. And and I think that's why I love her writing so much, um, because you know, she explores these characters and, and the depth of who they are. It isn't just, you know, this is a writer who's dealing with some issues, although obviously, particularly with Beloved, those issues are really kind of difficult um, and complex ones. Um, but she, she just does it. She does it beautifully. It's wonderful. And it kind of really transformed some of my thinking. It was a bit of a gateway for me into a huge variety of other texts and exploring other cultures and ideas and issues that I hadn't necessarily encountered before. So teaching that is is absolutely a joy. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, In in terms of when I myself was kind of at school, um, it's a tricky one. I I think probably it was the bits and pieces from 1984 that one of my English teachers introduced us to. And, uh, And again, that and I do think literature really can transform the way we're thinking. And, and that was a huge kind of revelation. Again, I was already very into kind of dystopian fiction and sci-fi fiction anyway. But, uh, you know, suddenly seeing the stamp of approval, the literature approval on something like that, uh, again, opened up a lot of conversations. So from a student's perspective, it was, it was definitely that. 
Mm. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm not sure if I've talked about it on this or something else before. But Beloved is always. I started reading Beloved, not knowing what it was about. You know, it was one of those books which it was like a classic, obviously, and I'd heard the name and never known. And I got to that bit and was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah it was one of those moments that you never forget really um yeah. so like, obviously uh, today um we're talking about the um Purella and Mayer's uh, like sort of generative learning and, and your work um kind of putting putting those principles or those strategies down onto paper and uh, in, a, in a more kind of digestible form for teachers um but one thing that a lot of people um, don't know myself included uh, is uh, who are Fiorella and May <laughs> and and how did you come across their work? Well, I, I, I imagine um, particularly Rich Mayer. When you think about the Mayer Lab and, and the Mayer Labs, you probably will go, "Hang on, actually, there is some mm-hmm. reason that I know that name or I know that person," because um, you know he's an American uh, psychologist, uh, yeah, particularly looking into um, kind of teaching. His area is specifically in the idea in this sort of field of uh, multimedia learning. He's really interested in uh, the potential for um, independent learning that that brings, the opportunities for that deeper learning as well. Um, And he's really explored that and and he's kind of explored what that means in terms of the way we think, the way we process. So he um, came up with the idea of the um, SOI model, which is at the heart of generative learning. And that's where students or or any, any learner really selects information um, organises that in- information in their working memory and then integrates that into their long-term memory. And he's kind of building those ideas and thinking about those ideas um, in relation to uh, particularly tech as well. So it's a, you know, he's a, an interesting character. You know, there, there's a huge amount of uh, research that he's done there. And um, Logan Fiorella, um, PhD student working in, again, in California in that same university. And they um we're obviously exploring these ideas together and uh, really wanted to interrogate in their own work um, what the literature said out there in terms of this generative learning idea. And, and the term generative learning had actually, um, it was coined back in 1974 by Merlin Whitrock. So, you know, the, again, this was something that they took and they developed. And I think that's what I quite like about their work anyway, is it's it's exploring what is already out there, bringing it all together, looking at it from a different angle um, and perhaps reimagining some of that and, and thinking how it relates to the classroom because they were looking at how it specifically related to that. And then I guess that's my next step is, well, what can we practically do with that um, day by day? I, I can't remember the first time I came across it the, because they, they, they condensed it. They, they wrote a book, but they also condensed it um, into a short paper and um, I think it was probably 2017, 2018. And I was really heavily into looking at lots of research. Um, my other half's also really heavily into looking at into research and education. And so we were passing lots of things backwards and forwards. Um, and I think my initial impression was there's some interesting things in here, but I was probably a bit guilty of going, yeah, but I do some of that. So I can put that to one side and not really think about it. And it was then when I went back to it, it kind of came out of that kind of top drawer where it was kind of with, with all the other papers. I thought, am I really doing this? Am I really activating 
that kind of generative process or have I been doing a more kind of superficial way of, of using that idea? Um, was I even necessarily drilling down into what I wanted my students to do when I was asking them to summarise or I was asking them to uh, even things like teaching each other? Was I really aware of when I was using that in a generative way? And I would say I wasn't. So I went back, had a word with myself, looked at it again. And uh, and then amazingly, Tom Sherrington got in touch um, a while later and said, uh, would you be interested in actually writing this up in more detail? So it, it was a fantastic opportunity. Mm, yeah, it's uh, in my own experience. I think I read it I don't know, like six months ago, like four months ago, something like that. It was certainly the last academic year. It wasn't it wasn't current one. So whenever that was and. What's quite nice about it for anyone who hasn't read it is, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, my commute is relatively short. It's only about 30 minutes and I kind of just, I read one strategy a day um, and it only took like five minutes, 10 minutes to kind of read it and think about it. And you could even, you know, experiment with it that day, maybe give or take. Um, some of them take a little bit more consideration or planning than others, I would argue, but it is such a, brilliantly digestible book and there's um there is the 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 kind of the case studies in there um i think i think uh, i came across the book because freya odell had been one of the case studies in there and she had a chat with you and mark and i was doing some research for an interview with her and i came across the book bought the book and i just thought it was brilliant um but as an english teacher by trade um as you are can you see some of the activities that are in there uh, some of the strategies lending themselves more to the subject um or or does each one offer an equal opportunity for consolidation of learning um like as all the rest i think you uh, with all of them you've got to be kind of aware of some of the boundary conditions um, particularly if you're digging into the research um i think you know to start from the negative side probably the one that i find is most difficult working with secondary phase is the enacting. Um, there's lots of discussion about embodied cognition at the moment, and and I know that that's something which is that you know people are starting to explore in more detail. But the idea of kind of using things like gesture with older students just wouldn't necessarily work, and and it wouldn't work because they're already quite adept at making abstract ideas concrete and then bringing them back, and and, and they don't need that kind of extra hook. So that's, that's kind of starting the negative end. That's the one that I find most difficult at the phase that I deal with. Um, but things like summary, um, you know, I mentioned that before, you know, that summary is something which has over time been kind of uh, the bread and butter in some of my English classrooms. And I, we would read a chapter or we'd talk about something and I would ask students to summarise that. Um, in hindsight, um, I would certainly say that I didn't always do that very well. And, um, and I think summary is one of those areas that it can be really difficult to get right. Um, and I certainly would know that I would get blank looks from my students when I would say, right, OK, summarise that information. And they'd go, what, 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 what do you mean? What, what, what does that actually look like? And of course, you know, over time, I realised, well, what I actually have to do is I have to show them the process. I have to show them what I'm selecting and why I'm selecting that information. I need to then show them how I would turn that into something with a kind of cohesive shape and what a summary looked like. And then I would need to check and, and show again how I was checking that. So I think summary is the one that we perhaps would automatically go to because it feels familiar. 
Um, it also certainly in the uh, kind of English GCSE specs, there are questions where we're asked, we, we ask students to summarise, although I would argue that isn't summarised necessarily in a generative way. So that's another thing to perhaps think about, you know, are we asking them to do that task for a generative reason to create this kind of meaning, to create this new understanding, or are we asking them to do it because that's what the exam board's requiring them to do um, in that particular example. So that's probably the most obvious one. But actually, when you think about it, we ask students to imagine all the time. So we ask them to imagine situations. We ask them to you know, take information from dis different texts and then again imagine what that character might be doing at, at different points. So that's something that we do as well. And self-testing, I think that that runs across all subjects, that, that's self-testing. And, and certainly... Um, it's something that as teachers, we're increasingly more familiar with because we do a lot of practice of retrieval and we might be doing that in class. And so if we're thinking, what do we want for a relatively quick win to move students over to taking control of some of their own revision and their own learning, self-testing would be the way to go because we've got structures and scaffolds already in place for that. Yeah. What ones have you found perhaps work best? Well, I was just about to say that that kind of... Um... Uh, that kind of revelation of um, thinking thinking you do these things already and then reflecting on them that moment of sort of uh, <laughs> realization that perhaps you don't do it to, to 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 the most kind of efficient point is definitely a moment that I had particularly like you say with summary I think summary um, is is something which um, I told myself I almost skipped the chapter because I'm like oh yeah I do that already and like you said <laughs> even in acting like in acting um I thought to myself you know when you when you're doing perhaps when you're teaching a play or you're teaching a novel which lends itself quite readily to this you can act out the 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 play in a way that kind of um like the Royal Shakespeare Company has that um whoosh kind of a approach yes. where you know the kids don't have to, and I even like sort of fooled myself into thinking that, like, <laughs> which obviously that's it's I mean it's it's a step in the right direction towards enacting but it's so far away from the lived reality of what you have to do um in terms of my experimentation with um the book and what it says yeah like definitely um the summarizing thing but I think that um the the main one for me that I was surprised by was like uh, the the diagramming, um, the, the diagramming one was was um, working with uh, the students that I've got. Um, they I think they're quite eager actually to to take something and be um, creative with it to kind of turn it in turn their hand to something new. And in the past that had kind of had a bit of a lethal mutation in terms of we'd ask them to draw this scene from the book and it really wasn't actually doing anything for their understanding of the text that I could see so using the diagramming strategy I thought um had a lot more um mileage than I thought it was going to initially it was a lot more effective once um you know I'd read the chapter carefully and tried to apply it so working with a text which is particularly complex um so in, you know, in GCSE, we have to do great expectations. Diagramming can be something which is like incredibly useful for, um, yeah, generating links or, or, or deeper understanding of, of certain aspects of the novel. Um, 
so yeah i think there's a bit of a squeamishness perhaps amongst english teachers to use anything which is overly visual or overly you know if they're not writing it it must be bad um so those are the things which uh, i found yeah i've I've, i haven't been i definitely think i could be more adventurous with regard to some of the strategies but that kind of leads me on to the next question question which would be like what kind of transaction cost because it's the transaction cost that Mm -hmm. i worry about the most with like the packed curriculum what kind of transaction cost would you associate with the respective activities? And because and, some seem more intuitive to students or English study than others. Well, I think, again, so, you know, to come back to summary, which again, you'd think, well, this is going to be the easy way and this is going to be the one that works. And actually, if you look at John Zanlowski's um, student toolkit, where he was um, looking, uh, oh, student toolbox, sorry, and he was looking at effective revision strategies for independent study, and uh, although summary has got evidence to back it for that particular purpose, he is quite reserved about advising people to use that because of the cost that's associated with it. Because if we want students to do that really well and then to be able to send them off to do that independently, it takes a lot. It also means that, it, you know, particularly if we're looking across a department or across um, different subjects, we need to invest in that staff training because, as I said earlier, it's actually much harder to do well than perhaps we give it credit for or have given it credit for. So uh, that can be really powerful. But I would say with all of them, it's really coming back to what is it the what is the issue that you're trying to address with your students? What what is the gap that perhaps they're struggling with? Um, you know, what's the thing that they they really aren't able to do in terms of generating understanding? And then you can start to think which strategy is going to address that. I, th- I think it's always going to be dangerous if we say, right, we're going to use five of these strategies or eight of these strategies, unless we've really considered what it is that we're trying to address with them. So that would always be my advice with, with anything, I suppose, really. Mm-hmm. So once you've identified that, then you can start thinking about the processes you need to take your students through in order to be able to get them to the point where they can they can work well with that um, and really making sure that you've unpicked exactly what it is they need to go through because some of it's tacit, some of us, that, that's that knowledge that we've already got and we won't necessarily be aware of that and we might be back to that situation with my students looking at me and going, well, what do you mean summary miss? You know, what on earth does one of those things look like? So um, you need to invest. I, I would suggest really investing lower down the school um, you know, I, I think we often worry about some of these things when we come to kind of what would be a year 11, you know, 15, 16 year old um, in, in our kind of system. Or uh, and actually it should be really year seven or before that, if you know, you've got primary phase thinking about what is it that we want our students to be able to, to do with this and invest at that point. And then that means that you're not kind of worrying, you know, the content coverage um, am I going to be able to cover that content and, and sort of teach this skill? Because perhaps they don't need to cover quite so much at that stage. Um, I think we sometimes try to cram a lot into our curriculum, but actually if they've got something that's really valuable mm. that they're then going to be able to use for everything, then that's probably going to be a better way to invest our time. So I think it's, you know, it's always going to be a question. It's always going to be a, going to be a balance. Um, there will be a cost. But I think if you invest in that early and really 
clarify yourself what it is you want to do with that and how you're going to do it, then it will be a worthwhile investment. Mm, I think, yeah, the, the, the year seven kind of um, comment there, it's particularly something I've found. We, um, there's, there's, I think there's a bit of a trade-off with regard to, so when we did, when I kind of focused on that, you know, um, like mapping of ideas, like diagramming the ideas, um, I found it to be quite successful, but obviously that's, that's from, you know, my position looking out at the classroom. And then I asked them for their opinion. So like sent them like an anonymous questionnaire and stuff. And the feedback was quite, I wonder about the feedback because it was like almost almost overly effusive in its praise Mm -hmm. and I think a little bit kind of suspicious. Whereas when I, um, I did the same thing, but with higher up the school, um, in the in the kind of examination year levels, um, the 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 feedback was a lot more honest. It was just like this doesn't work for me. Really, I don't like to work this way, etc., etc., etc. So that was quite an interesting um, dichotomy. I, I still haven't been brave enough to kind of um, um, experiment with the the teaching um, uh, skill. That's something I think I'm going to look at this year. But, uh, that, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting one, I think, because the biggest difficulty with that, and, and that's something that I highlight in, in that chapter particularly, is it's so hard to isolate exactly what it is that's making the difference. So they saw better outcomes, mm. but it was really difficult to know whether it was knowing you were going to have an audience to share your ideas with, going through the process of teaching yourself, you know, actually uh, teaching someone else, whether it was the quality of the questioning that then followed that up. Um, and, and it's really difficult to then know. But I guess if you combine all three of those things really well, then you could be onto a winner. But uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting when you start to think that you can't kind of necessarily isolate there's different elements and there's lots of elements to that. I think it's also interesting what you say about the mapping um, and the older students perhaps not being so keen on it. Um, sometimes it can be tricky because they've got their eye on the prize, um, particularly yeah. if they've got exams coming up and they're thinking, well, actually, I don't want to change. I don't want to yeah. do something different. And, uh, you know, mentioning sort of the John Dunlosky's work um, again, you know, when I introduced that to some year 11 students and said, but, you know, lovely as your work is with all the highlighting and, and everything that you've done on that, actually, the research says that maybe that's not going to be the best use of your three hours tonight to do that. And and it's a hard message. Um, and and for some of them, making that change, they, they, you know, there's security in that. And, and I've certainly heard him on a podcast as well saying, well, actually, even if it's not the best use of their time, if it's a case of them doing no revision or going back and highlighting their mm-hmm. notes, perhaps highlight their notes. But it, you know, to to change what you're comfortable with at a stage when they're already perhaps feeling a little bit worried about what's around the corner anyway, it can be a tricky one. So yeah, I'm getting them at year seven. I'm getting them as early as possible on board and and then working with them there. I found that, yeah, there was one student actually, that's it's suddenly kind of come back to me that they talked about the fact that um, that strategy, they'd been encouraged to use it during like an intensive English class. So a class, it's almost like um, um, like a supplementary class that they have to take because uh, either their kind of English is a second language or 
Uh, their English is just like um, their academic kind of English isn't as good as it could be. And I think it's almost like it was it was tarred with a certain brush in terms of like because math is such a an effective skill to kind of visualize your thoughts and that kind of thing. But because they associate it with a, with a different class, which they didn't like through no fault of the teacher's mm-hmm. own or, or anything like that. They just didn't like the fact they had to go to this class. It was almost like they had this yeah, negative association with it. So with, with year seven, you do have that kind of um, almost uh, unconditional buy-in or, or <laughs> you know, fresh slate, to, so to yeah. speak. So, yeah. Um, um, are some of the strategies more effective at certain moments in an English scheme of work than others does some work better in like can they be used from day one and and are some better at the end of the unit um what what would be your experience with that or your opinion on that Zoe um that's again it's an interesting one because I I think it's, it's always going to depend on what's in that unit and what the prior learning is as well um I think again something I've been guilty of in the past I've perhaps rushed students to do something with knowledge before I've known it's secure. And um, I would probably recommend that um, you know, some of those strategies, if we're using them generatively, um, because you can, of course, use something like drawing for a completely different reason. You can use something like um, you know testing right at the beginning of a unit to check, test their prior knowledge and just check where they're at. Um, sort of right at the start as well but if you're talking about something where we're really wanting them to select information from across a broad range and use that information in quite an agile way we've got to be certain they've got that in the first place so we've got to think about our instruction the materials that they've given and and that was something as well that um, uh, Fiorella and Maya really flagged up a lot throughout their research was the quality of the materials, the quality of that first input will make a difference to how they can then use these strategies that, you know, we we can't be building on sand. We've got to make sure they've got that secure. So I think, you know, there's there's not going to be one absolute answer um, because it does just depend on the unit. It depends on the students. But whatever you do, I would say, make sure that they've got that secure knowledge first before you send them off to try and explore some of these strategies because then you might well get that case of students going, well, I didn't like that. That didn't work for me because they didn't have the required knowledge. If they've got materials, you know, it's it's great if they can retrieve lots of things from their own memory, but if they've got other materials to support them that they're selecting from, that that probably makes it easier. But it really does come back to, you know, making sure they've got that knowledge that they can do something with it. Mm, Yeah. I think like in my experience, again, it's, there's not much you could, I mean, in theory, you could use any one of them at any point in the unit, but yeah, it's almost building on that kind of, um, it's the activation of the knowledge. So if they, if they don't have the knowledge in hand, then obviously there's not much point in them summarizing their thoughts or kind of drawing or mapping out what they know or, um, you know, self-testing or anything like that. I feel like these kick into gear, sort of once you pass the 50, you know, the, 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 the halfway mark, so to speak, or if you are doing um, short stories as part of kind of like, you know, a, an exam spec or something like that, once you're halfway through the collection or halfway through the text, I feel like then it can, it can, um, it can, it can kick into gear. Um, but 
in your own experience, like which of the activities do you do you more naturally gravitate towards, um, and why? You've obviously got like a, a I would think like a, an excellent knowledge of all of them. <laughs> um, so, which ones do you kind of would you think if you were in the classroom you gravitate towards? I, I think I probably gravitate towards that self testing because if I can get, uh, I find that if I can get students to be even asking themselves questions throughout the learning sequence. So even if we're kind of working through something and it's not reliant on them, me just asking questions, that's a win. And mm. I've had students where, you know, we've been doing retrieval in class, they've taken that forward into self-testing at home and they've come back to me and they've said, it's been a revelation because they have such a, a strong understanding now of where their gaps are and what they need to revisit. Um, and obviously, you know, if I, I had classes only with students who are saying that, I, I well, I, I probably would have retired a long time ago and made a lot of money with whatever <laughs> that formula was because they're fantastic. Um, but, you know, to, to kind of hand over that metacognitive process, um, that for me is probably quite a natural thing with my teaching approach and what I'm trying to get students to do all the time. So it's not just about me questioning, it's about them questioning and exploring to try to understand. And um, in, in the book as well, it, it kind of mentions the MITMs, they call them, the metacognition and, and motivation. And for me, self-testing as well is, is a huge gateway into that motivation because they can see that progress so, so much more clearly. Um, I think with all of the strategies, and, and again, why I like it is because it's starting to try to make that learning much more visible mm. and to make that thinking much more visible. And I wouldn't say we've always necessarily had that. And that's where your mapping can come in really usefully as well, um, as kind of Oli Caviglioli talks about it, doesn't he, about how these kind of mind maps and concept maps start to make the way that we organise our thinking really visible. Um, and, and even something like as simple as self-testing, that can be really done visibly and students can see that progress. Mm, I think like um, the, the self-testing one is, um, it's there is a lot of students who kind of, they're particularly active and they're very or proactive, I should say, in, in studying and going back over stuff they've said before. And that old thing that like teachers have been saying for a long time now about how rereading, highlighting passages and this kind of thing, it just doesn't seem um you know it just doesn't stick that the, the research kind of reflects it just doesn't stick in the same way that um you know interleaved um recall of information or kind of self-testing does and it, it's such a life skill it's such a it's such a fantastic skill for them to take forward into tertiary education or even into the world of work like when I had to do a master's and I found out that I had exams and I had to learn kind of um you know theory um f by memory and stuff like that i kind of had to um employ some of these strategies myself and it does seem quite overwhelming at first but it is in a matter of time you can recall all this information and yeah the students who do master it the students who do kind of take your advice on board um i still every year when you sort of say to them you know you need to remember this many quotes for this exam and it just <laughs> blows their mind <laughs> and um, that they might have to remember like I had a student I always kind of roll out this anecdote of a student who re um, revised 150 quotes and when she got the question for the paper not a single one of them was relevant which is really <laughs> tragic she went on to get an A star anyway oh. um, but um 
yeah it's it's um i would uh, yeah I, I really can sympathize with that answer actually that it, it's the most invigorating for students once they kind of get their head around it it really invigorates their interest in how the mind works and how that relates to education and their own studies um yeah and I think even within class if they kind of just you know as they're doing a piece of work even asking themselves questions mm. do I know that and checking and really checking do they know that themselves can, can you know it makes a difference between a student who's sitting there um, going perhaps in the wrong direction or, a sit, or is waiting for that kind of input from a teacher to address it to somebody who's actually going let me interrogate that let me think about that let me see mm. what else I've got that's available to me and uh, you know that's what we want for all of our students isn't it we know good learners do that all the time mm. and that is a pro, perhaps a gateway in for me yeah and you and you said it before in terms of the the like the motivation factor as well it's 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 relatively easy to turn someone who's got like no faith in themselves or like a little amount of faith in, in themselves at the beginning of the year to someone who genuinely believes they can do it just because they can recall or like self-test themselves on this information and, and recall the information and consolidate it and then use it in a practical way it's a very easy strategy over the long run to kind of change people's um, students' minds in that way. Particularly boys have found some of the lads who kind of don't believe in themselves and, and they kind of, if you can push them to experiment with that particular strategy, it's such a, um, a cheap win um, uh, to use kind of a pejorative term. But yeah, um, yeah. The, the final thing for me to say is just obviously thank you very much for taking your time to discuss the book. Um, yeah, the book itself is absolutely fantastic for anyone who hasn't read it. It's very, very uh, digestible. You could you could probably read it in an hour. Hey, um, but I think like you said, it kind of it bears a certain amount of um it, it bears kind of going back and looking at it in more detail and thinking deeply about like how to apply each strategy to the classroom and stuff and experimenting with it but it's an it's an excellent commute book it's an excellent kind of you know 30 minutes before bed book to kind of get your mind thinking so um thank you to you and mark for, for bringing the kind of research to life and um agreeing to speak to me today you're very, very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I do have to say that I hope that at the end of each chapter, you filled in the little sections um, <laughs> so, <laughs> to make it. There's a little space for everyone to try out the strategy themselves to check their own learning from the chapter. So uh, if you have done that, please share it on Twitter. I'd be interested to see. I'll be sure to do that in the coming days. Yeah, I'll have to go back and have a look at my, uh, yeah, kind of crazed handwriting as I was doing it on the underground yeah and okay. um, um, remember as it says on the drawing one it, it's not about being artistic <laughs> it's about the learning process <laughs> thank god okay um, <laughs> thank you very much for your time Zoe you're very welcome <laughs>